by talking about adipose tissue and then go down into some of the consequences and I'm going to focus on one organ in particular. So as Stanley very much spoke nicely of, I'm going to be talking about adipose tissue. So when I talk about obesity, it's talking about adipose tissue. And as he mentioned, it's a metabolic and endocrine organ. It has a multitude of functions. We used to think it was just a storage hub, but actually it provides cushioning, insulation. It provides a great source of energy in the form of triacylglycerol. It stores it, and it's the biggest form of energy in our body. It releases energy in the form of fatty acids or non-sterified fatty acids, and it secretes hormones and adipokines. So it is a metabolically active organ. It's just not made up of adipocytes though, so it's not just fat-filled cells. There's other cell types in there. There's pre-adipocytes, endothelial cells, and macrophages. And we have an expert on that in Caroline Pond. So what types of adipose tissue do we have? And I'm talking about adults here. Our biggest type in the body is white adipose tissue. It's single large lipid droplets with few mitochondria. Compared to other types of adipose tissue, it could be claimed it's very metabolically inactive. And it's present in large amounts. If you think we have the biggest depots of your fat are, they're under your skin, that's why we've got kilo amounts. We have smaller amounts as an adult of brown adipose tissue, and this contains small lipid droplets and many mitochondria. So that's when it's presented under a microscope, it looks brown. It's metabolically very active, so it produces heat. And it's only present in an adult in very small amounts. And you can see here where they've visualised it up by your collarbone. And the new kit on the block that came out a few years ago was the bright or beige adipose tissue. And it's an intermediate between brown and white. And again, present, they think, in small grains. There's a lot of work and talk in the area of physiology about developing pharmacological therapies to activate our brown adipose tissue as a cure for obesity. But I don't think it's quite as simple as that. So we often get people that come in and do our studies and they'll tell me that they're heavy because they've got big bones, their weight's a bit heavier than they thought. It's big bones, they're tall, whatever. But actually the relationship between your body weight and body fat is very strong. As your body weight goes up, it's tend to be because you've put on body fat. And again, it tends to be white subcutaneous adipose tissue or within your visceral or intra-abdominal area. So you can see the difference here in a lean individual, we have our subcutaneous fat, and in the heavier individuals you can see the white coming up, and that's their intra-abdominal fat, which is also called visceral fat. And I'm sure you've heard people talk about whether you're an apple or a pear. So it's to do with how your body fat is distributed. And if we take a male and a female, they both have a similar BMI. The male's a bit taller, so he weighs more but the BMI is similar, it's around 25, so on the verge of being what would be defined as overweight. You can see they have very different shapes and they have very different fat masses. So a female, as Stanley said, has more fat mass. In this case, it's 22 kilos of their body weight is fat mass, and the male is 20. So we've matched them for fat mass just to show you what happens when you look at their waist. You can see a female has a smaller waist, 72 centimetres, and the male 20 centimetres bigger. And the hips are actually similar. So then when we work that out as a waist-to-hip ratio, a female, because of her smaller waist, has a low waist-to-hip ratio, whereas a male has a high waist-to-hip ratio. And that's where we get the apple and the pear shape, by simply measuring someone's waist and hips. But why is that important? So when you look at if all the adipose tissue, your subcutaneous and visceral adipose tissue, is it equal? Does it do the same thing? There was a very large study called the Interheart study, 
And what they did is they measured just the waist quartile and the hip quartile. It was in a large number of people and they looked at the risk of myocardial infarction with you, um, in your waist measurement and in your hip circumference. And what you can see is as your waist quartile goes up, so you get an increase in waist size, your risk of MI goes up. Mm -hmm. But as your hips go up in size, you actually have a decrease in risk. So they were saying that an increased waist circumference, which when you think about when you measure your waist, includes your subcutaneous and visceral fat, increased your risk of myocardial infarction, whereas if you had a greater hip circumference, you had a lower risk. So this is why it seemed to be good to have good hips and maybe a smaller stomach. So as much as females don't like their big hips, sometimes they are to benefit, metabolically beneficial. So how do we go about measuring or understanding the physiology of subcutaneous adipose tissue? So this is something that Keith set up and I worked on a little bit um, in terms of a bigger project. So we can do that by doing what's called arteriovenous difference to understand it. So they can put an arterial catheter in the femoral artery and that will drain um, blood samples from there will look at what's going around your body systemically. You then have little veins in your tummy fat, you also have them in your leg fat, and we can put catheters in those and take blood samples from those. If we want to know how fast things are moving, we can measure blood flow, and that's what these two probes are here. So this is known as an arteriovenous difference technique, and Keith pioneered this in Oxford a long time ago, and from that we've had, got our understanding of adipose tissue physiology. So if we look at what happens, if I just plotted this curve, it would be well, what is happening. So adipose tissue is there as a buffer for the daily fatty acid flux. And using the methodology of arteriovenous difference, you can work out the transcapillary flux. So the net movement of fat going into the tissue and coming out of the tissue. So if you look firstly down here, you can see it's a big negative number. And this is before we've fed you a meal. And this is when your adipose tissue is releasing fat. So the fatty acids are going to other organs to provide energy. When we feed you a meal that contains fat, we then go up into positive numbers in our transcapillary flux. So we're starting to store the fatty acids. Where you want your fat to go is into your adipose tissue. It's your storage compartment. And then as you, you start to metabolize your meal, you clear the meal, your adipose tissue goes back to a state of net e-flux. You're releasing fat again to provide energy to other tissues. So I said if we looked at our abdominal and our gluteal, do they do something different in terms of their fatty acid movements? Because people, particularly women, always say, you know, a moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips. It feels like our hip fat is very hard to, to get rid of. When we look at the transcapillary flux of our lower body, our femoral fat, compared to our upper body or our abdominal subcutaneous adipose tissue, in the red line we have our abdominal subcutaneous adipose tissue transcapillary flux, and in the blue line is the femoral. And what you can see is that abdominal releases more in the fasting state, but it also stores more and comes back down. So it's more of an active depot, the fat under, around your tummy, than your lower body fat. So there is some adage into a, lifetime, a minute in the mouth, a lifetime on the hips. This was for a six hour study. What happens over 24 hours in a lean male? So we studied lean males. They came in and we fed them three meals. 
five hours apart, and the meals were a similar macronutrient composition. So it had the same amount of fat, the same amount of carbohydrate, and the same amount of protein. You can see in the fasting state, their adipose tissue, and this is just their tummy fat, was releasing fatty acids. And then when we feed them the meal, they started to store the fatty acids. We feed them another meal, they stored some more. We feed the last meal, they continued storing. And it's not until they came back into the overnight phase that they started to release fatty acids again. <coughs> Excuse me. What happens when you study men who have a greater fat mass? And we did the same study in what we called abdominally obese males. And they had about just under twice the amount of fat mass as our lean males. And this is the change in fatty acids per 100 grams of tissue. And you can see per unit mass of tissue, the abdominally obese males were not as metabolically active. They were very flat. So they released less fatty acids per 100 grams of tissue, and they stored less or took up more, uh, less per 100 grams of tissue. So as they got bigger, their adipose tissue wasn't as active per unit mass. And off that, we could calculate how much of the fat from the meal they'd stored in their adipose tissue. And when we did that, we have in the blue bars our lean males, and you can see with each meal, they stored more of the meal fat in their adipose tissue. So it went from about 15% after the first meal up to just under 50% by the last meal. Whereas the abdominally obese males went up a little bit by the second meal, but actually didn't change by the third meal. So in this case, as people start to get bigger and have more adipose tissue, maybe their adipose tissue becomes less functional. It doesn't work as well. Now, adipose tissue is sort of a major player in metabolism, and I, this, I usually have Keith Brain on here because this is his diagram, but it fell off this one, so apologies, Keith. But this is a very nice diagram I use a lot from Keith. We have adipose tissue taking up fat from our meal and also storing it and then releasing it. So these fatty acids go around to other tissues. They go around to skeletal muscle, and a tissue arm organ I'm very interested in, the liver. So our other organs are very reliant on this release of fatty acids, but also the uptake of fatty acids to keep them away from those organs. And I'm just going to show you about the liver. So the liver is quite a unique organ. It serves as an intermediary organ between exogenous, so that's your dietary sources, and endogenous sources of energy, and various extrahepatic organs that consume energy. So it's really important your liver functions well to keep you in metabolic homeostasis or in health. And this is a very busy picture, but just to show you, your liver does a multitude of functions. It can make, take up glucose and store glucose, but it also makes its own glucose. It takes up fat, it can make its own fat from sugars, it can store fat, and it can release fat. So it's a very busy organ. But what happens when you start to put on weight? So as somebody's fat mass starts to increase, their subcutaneous fat depot gets bigger, their visceral adipose tissue depot gets bigger, but they start storing fatty acids in non-adipose tissue organs. So you start storing fat in your skeletal muscle, in your heart, and in your liver. And if we look at the liver, and just look at the basic movements of fat that come through the liver, you've always got fatty acids going into your liver. That's very normal. Your adipose tissue is always releasing some fatty acids. They go into the liver, and they go into what we call a common fatty acid pool. 
Fat from your diet, depending on how much you eat and how often you eat, will go pass through your liver. And as I said, your liver is a very clever organ. It can turn any non-lipid precursors, and the one we hear a lot about are the sugars, particularly fructose. It can go through a process called de novo lipogenesis, and that adds fatty acids to the common pool as well. So from there, we have this generic pool. We can then partition our fatty acids into pathways where we esterify them and we make triacylglycerol, so this benign way of storing our fat. And that can go and be stored in your liver, or it can go into a secretion pool and come out into your blood as in VLDL, or very low density lipoprotein. So in the fasting state, if I took a blood sample and measured the amount of triacylglycerol or fat in your blood, this is predominantly what I'm measuring, what your liver has secreted overnight. The other place that your fatty acids in the liver can go is they can go for oxidation, they can produce energy. So they can enter the mitochondria and we then can go through the TCA cycle and get CO2 produced. Or the liver's very clever, it makes its, um, has another pathway called ketogenesis and you make the ketone body 3-hydroxybutyrate. So when people talk about ketogenic diets, what they're doing is having a lot of this product being made. The liver doesn't utilise it, it sends it into systemic circulation, so you can measure it in the blood. It's one of the only organs in the body that makes ketone bodies. So if we take it from a very metabol uh, uh, overview, we have input on one side, we have synthesis in the middle, and we have disposal on the other side. So normally, all of us have a very small amount in health. Our liver has a very small amount of fat in it. We've got things coming in and going out. But when we get an imbalance in this process, we get liver fat accumulation. And it's now one of the most common liver diseases in the Western world. And it's known as non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and it's seen in people who do not drink a lot of alcohol. And we, I think it's an imbalance between fatty acid input, synthesis, and disposal. So if you think back to our obese person, where they can't store as much of their dietary fat in their adipose tissue, the liver is starting to see more fat. <coughs> As I said, NAFLG is the most common liver disease. It affects individuals who do not consume significant amount of alcohol. And it's a spectrum of a disease. So we have our healthy liver. The first stage in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is you start accruing fat, and it's either called steatosis or fatty liver. So you start getting lipid droplets within your liver, and that can progress to more severe liver disease. So you end up with cirrhosis or hepatocellular carcinoma. So the starting to accrue fat in your liver is not a good thing because you may end up going down a trajectory of getting severe liver disease. So what are the risk factors from going from a really nice healthy liver? You can see here, we took a, a sample, we've done a microscope, you can see there's only one or two little white bits. That's a healthy liver. What are the risk factors for going to something like that? And that's where you can see, it's quite clear, you've now got a lot of white dots that are triacylglycerol being stored in lipid droplets and that starts looking a bit more like adipose tissue. There are some very non-modifiable risk factors. Being a male, is you're at higher risk than a female of developing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Ethnicity and your genetics. If you carry certain variants of known genes, then you are at higher risk. The very modifiable risk factors, visceral adiposity. Low physical activity. You don't actually need to lose weight to be at lower risk. Doing some physical activity, whether it be resistance training or cardiovascular training,
training does lower your risk of getting fat occurring in your liver. And that is without weight loss. And what you eat can put you at risk. And I've just done a study and we know if you eat a high saturated fat diet and you don't gain weight, compared to a high sugar diet and don't gain weight, you get more liver fat if you eat the high saturated fat diet compared to the high sugar diet. We're not sure why that is. <coughs> and just to show you that these livers can turn into what I was calling the fragois of livers, um, we've studied human livers um, ex vivo, so we have human livers that connect to a machine where they're cannulated like they are in your body, and we can then study their function, and this is one that we got. It was obviously rejected for transplant for a reason. And just to show you there is a very strong link between visceral fat and liver fat, I've put together all the data I have for the participants I had put in an MRI scanner to measure the amount of liver fat they had. And you can see we just did it by waist circumference as our proxy marker for visceral fat. And there's a strong correlation with the increase in your waist circumference, the increase in liver fat prevalence. So you have a higher amount of fat in your liver. So what are the consequences of having fat in your liver? It could be said, well, it's just tucked away in triacylglycerol, kind of like the adipose tissue, where's the problem? There's a number of things we know now about having fat in your liver that aren't good. One is, if you already have fat in your liver, paradoxically, you start making more of your own fat in your liver. So you upregulate the pathway of turning your non-lipid precursors into fat. So just by default, by having fat there, you make more of it, more of your own. There's also a decrease in fatty acid oxidation, <coughs> so you don't dispose of as many fatty acids through the oxidating pathways. You get an increased secretion in VLDL containing triacylglycerol and increased plasma triacylglycerol concentrations, so higher amounts of uh, fat in your blood. And you get a decrease in plasma HDL cholesterol, which is known as the good cholesterol, and nobody really understands why, but this is an observation that's commonly seen. And as I said, your liver makes glucose. And it's a process known as gluconeogenesis. And when you have fatty liver disease, you increase the amount of new glucose you're making, and this can lead to an increase in your plasma glucose concentration. The other thing about having fat in your liver is it may cause endoplasmic reticulum stress. And this is a, in um, the area I work in, everyone talks about ER stress, and none of us really know what it means, but it's meant to be a bad thing. But I think it is, in the, particularly in the secretory pools, which are in the endoplasmic reticulum, as you start pushing them out of shape. So you have these big lipid droplets starting to displace organelle within the cell. But if you take all this together, what it does is it increases your risk of heart disease and diabetes. So people that start to accrue fat in their liver have a five times greater risk of getting type 2 diabetes than people without. And it would go the same for heart disease because you have a decrease in HDL and you have an increased amount of fat in your blood. The other thing that happens is when you get fatty liver is you get insulin resistance. So normally, the normal insulin, after you've eaten a meal that contains carbohydrate, insulin within the liver signals and it says, do not make any more glucose, there's enough coming in. So you inhibit glucose production from the liver. When you've got fatty, um, fatty liver disease, your liver becomes resistant to the action of insulin. 
So what happens is you then don't get the signaling to say stop making more glucose. And your glucose goes up, you require more insulin for the same effect as a normal lean healthy person. And this can lead to an increase in your blood glucose and also in your insulin. So you're making your pancreas work very hard. And if you plot the liver fat here on the x-axis with your fasting insulin, you can see as you start getting more liver fat, you have a higher fasting insulin concentration. And there was a very nice study done where they took individuals and they either matched them for visceral fat or they matched them for liver fat. So here it says low and high, low fat, low visceral adipose tissue and high visceral adipose tissue, but they had the same amount of liver fat. And you can see the results for their measurements of insulin resistance for the liver were about similar. When they matched the visceral fat and they said someone either had a high amount of liver fat or a low amount of liver fat, or it's high, that's low, there's a decrease in insulin sensitivity. So showing that the liver fat is really the driver of the insulin resistance rather than just the visceral fat. And if you look at um, the associations with plasma triglyceride, again, normally if you eat a mixed meal containing some fat and sugar, insulin will signal in your liver and it will inhibit or suppress the production of VLDL. So you're not sending more fat from the liver out when you've already got fat coming in from the meal. When you have hepatic insulin resistance because you have fat in your liver, you impair this and you get more VLDL being secreted. So you're almost swamping the system as trying to clear dietary fat and what's coming from the liver. And again, there's a strong correlation between liver fat and fasting triglycerides, so the amount of fat in your blood. And then the same study that matched for either visceral adipose tissue, or they matched for and gave you as a high or a low intrahepatic uh, triglyceride amount, the higher your liver fat for the same amount of visceral fat, the higher your secretion rate of VLDL. So your liver is really starting to produce and secrete more triglyceride. And again, that's just being driven by the liver fat, not by the visceral fat. Now I'm just going to end. I've got four slides because we talk about the metabolic um, problems with having liver fat. And that's coming from people that are typically obese. They put on body fat and this may impact on how their liver works. So the area or the way you treat fatty liver disease is by asking people to change their diet and exercise more. So lose weight. We're obviously not so successful with that because people do it initially, but they don't maintain it. Um, there is no pharmacological theory, therapy at this point in time that's licensed for fatty liver disease. And there was a paper recently that got it, well, a long time ago, but we were thinking, someone said, oh, it's a shame, can't we? Can't we just remove the fat and that will cure the problem? So I'm just going to end by talking about are there metabolic benefits to removing abdominal fat by liposuction? So liposuction is an easy thing to do. Well, easy. It's something that could be done. And this is an older paper that was done by Sam Klein. They studied eight um, women with abdominal obesity, so they had a waist circumference of greater than 100 centimetres, and they had normal glucose tolerance, so they were not diabetic, but they were insulin resistant, so they were pre-diabetic. And they studied seven women who had abdominal obesity, uh, abdominal obesity sorry, but they had type 2 diabetes, so they were very metabolically deranged. Now, this hasn't come out so well, but you can see before liposuction and after liposuction, they 
had a change in their waist circumference of 14 centimetres. So they lost the fat around their belly. Interestingly, doesn't may not show up that well, there was absolutely no change in their plasma glucose or insulin pre and post surgery. And there's absolutely no change in their high density lipoprotein cholesterol, their HDL cholesterol, or their triglycerides pre and post surgery. So liposuction really is there for cosmetic benefits, I think. There's absolutely no improvement in insulin sensitivity in the liver, muscle, or adipose tissue, so it had no metabolic benefit. Um, there were no improvements in markers of inflammation and no improvement in the risk factors for coronary heart disease. Now, I told you earlier that having um, your lower body fat is more beneficial than your upper body fat, so in terms of risk of disease. And there was a study that was done, and I'm just going to end with this because I thought it was an interesting study, and it proves the point that having lower body fat is a good thing. They asked the question, are there metabolic benefits to removing gluteal fat by liposuction? They studied normal weight women. So by that, I mean they had a BMI of 24. They were not obese, they were not overweight, they were normal weight, um, mean age 45 years. I, want, I don't know how they got this through ethics, but they randomised them to have femoral like pectomy, so taking their hip fat away, or as a control. And they followed them for one year, and they looked at postprandial lipemia. So they looked at what happened to their blood fat after they fed them a fatty meal. And this doesn't show up very well, sorry, but basically they were saying the control group and the lipo group were similar in age, slightly younger than the lipo group, but more or less similar, had a similar BMI, all the characteristics were similar. So this is their leg fat mass. And this is at baseline, so you can see both groups had a similar leg fat mass. Two months after, as you would expect, the group where they took some fat mass away were lower, and 14 months after, they were still lower. So the liposuction worked. They took away fat mass, and they maintained that loss. What they then did is they gave them a very fatty meal. And this is... Um, a number of lines here, but the take home messages, this is the amount of their serum triglycerides, so the amount of fat in their blood, and when you feed someone a fatty meal, you would expect it to go up. This is the group here, 14 months on, that had the liposuction from their hips. And when they looked at it, as an area under the curve. It's a far bigger response. So by removing their hip fat, that made them more lipemic in the postprandial state, which is not a good thing. So it's proving, it's saying that your hip fat is there for a reason, and by taking it away um, by liposuction had no benefit. If anything, it worsened their metabolic profile. So in summary, I would say adipose tissue function rather than absolute mass is an important factor, and we need to look at function as well as mass. I think when um, the inability of adipose tissue to sequester fat exposes the rest of the body to excess lipids, and this is what leads to our eptopic fat deposition. So if you think of the liver becoming full of fat. Eptopic fat deposition is closely related to developing insulin resistant type 2 diabetes and risk of heart disease. So we don't want people to be accumulating fat in their non-adipose tissue organs. And I would say removable adipose tissue by liposuction is not metabolically beneficial. We need to be able to lose weight, um, unfortunately via the hard way, exercise and diet. So thank you very much.